With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's season three. Can we believe it? Because I sure shit can't. We're going to hit episode 100 this season. I'm really excited. Oh, man, we'll have to have a celebration. We didn't celebrate when we hit 100K downloads. Now we're inching on 150K. Well, 130, 150, hopefully by this point. When you're listening to this, we'll be 150. I'm going to get a cake. You got to celebrate. So we're back. We're I for an I podcast. If you're new here, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Lisa. I'm here with Matt and Jules. And we are here bringing you on all listening platforms, whether or not we believe the punishment fits the crime. Now, we've got a, what's the word? Titalizing? Tantalizing? What's Tantalizing or titillating? Which one are you going for? Both. Do they mean the same thing? Kinda. Okay, then both. Titillating kind of keeps you on the hook and it's like really suspicious, mysterious, and tantalizing is like super attractive and makes you want more. So kinda, I guess. Kind of both. Kind of both. Well, we have a crazy case, as always. You know, it's actually funny. I guess it's not funny. It's kind of morbid, but we were walking through a haunted house with my dad and I the other night. And there was a kitchen that looked suspiciously like the kitchen that we might be discussing today. Everybody knows what case we're about to talk about. It's been the talk of the town since it happened, really, but even more so now because there is a Netflix series out, which Matt will tell you all about here in a second. But it's interesting how series like that can like rebring a case to light and get people more curious about it. By the time you're listening to this, that will have been out for a while. So if you haven't checked it out, go to Netflix and you'll know what we're talking about here in one second, Matt. Tell us what what crazy fuck are we talking about today? Well, before I even say his name, I'd like to issue a massive trigger warning because this case is really fucked up in every possible facet you can conceive. This one's pretty fucked up. But also, there are people who did not know about this case until this came out. That's mind-boggling to me. Right. There are people who are like, who? Let me sit down and watch this. But yes, Jules, you slightly alluded to it, and Lisa has danced around it. We are talking about the infamous Jeffrey Dahmer, okay? Let's just lay this out. As children, we're all taught to fear the boogeyman. As adults, we learn that the boogeyman only really exists in the form of human beings gone terribly awry. And one of the most terrifying villains are the ones that you wouldn't even see as being the villain. Your average Joe, normal guy, turned into a sadistic serial killer. Between 1977 and 1991, Milwaukee, Wisconsin residents knew of the existence of one such man. Or I guess some did. 
He remained in shadows for far longer than he should have and preyed on some of the most marginalized people in the city. What truly frightens the imagination is the understanding that we may not know how or why these types of people operate the way they do, the motives for their crimes, or even how we can catch them if they're efficient enough. The extent of this man's crimes remain shrouded in mystery to this day. Despite his taped confessions and interviews, which you will hear some of these in this case directly, we don't even know all that he did to his victims of some of his most heinous crimes because some he says he literally can't recall. Words we use to associate with Jeffrey Dahmer are enough to leave chills going up your spine far beyond even the normal murders would. Sexual slavery, drug-induced psychosis, dissection, animal abuse, necrophilia, lobotomy, grave robbery, rape or sexual assault, dismemberment, trophy collecting, and cannibalism. Pop culture has kind of taken up the mantra that we should re-examine this case via the Netflix special, which I'm sure you've heard about it. If only to remember the horrors committed that he committed and to pay some tribute to the victims and their families and everybody who lived through this. But it's opened up a myriad of different questions about the case in today's society, which again, this happened as recently as 30 years ago. We're not talking about the 50s here. How did he manage to get away with it? Who else should be held responsible? How and why did he choose his victims? And to me, the most mystifying question, was he insane, disturbed, or just downright evil? So as we delve into this case today, we will ask everyone to always remember the victims and mourn their loss. This is human life we're talking about when we read these names off of this page. And we also ask that anyone with trigger warnings about violent sexual murders be on guard for this case has some of the most gruesome details one can imagine. And we do delve into it a bit. So as we dive headlong into the case of this man who now lives in infamy, despite his death, his name has become synonymous with some of the worst recorded crimes in human history. So let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. He was born to parents Lionel and Joyce Dahmer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on May 21st, 1960. He was one of two children the couple would have, he and his brother David. They had an interesting relationship with their parents, and we'll delve into that a little bit more. But Jeff's early life was adequately described as a relatively unusual one, even though he says it was pretty normal. His father was a research chemist with Marquette University in Milwaukee, and his mother, Joyce, was a typist. Both his parents had their own sets of issues, Lionel primarily in dealing with his family life and confronting his wife's issues and his distance from his sons, and Joyce with her own set of issues surrounding her mental health. Her life was tormented with depression symptoms, and she could probably be most adequately described as a hypochondriac with paranoid schizophrenic tendencies. And again, this is the 60s, so I don't know exactly what the state of the mental health community was at that point, but I'm going to go ahead and say probably not super well organized. There were several psychological factors that weighed in on Jeffrey Dahmer's eventual understanding of the gravity of life and death, and I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. Jeff was allegedly dropped on his head as a baby. His mother supposedly took numerous sleeping pills and other mood disorder suppressing drugs during her pregnancy with him. 
I'm not saying for certain it had any impact on his later life, but could be a mitigating factor. He also had a hernia surgery, a double hernia that his dad would claim was part of the reason he was never the same after. Um, I don't know. Just wanted to point that out. Dahmer has been described later in his life and in post-arrest interviews as an energetic and happy child, but became notably subdued after that double hernia surgery shortly before his fourth birthday. And that was something his father later latched onto and was concerned that he changed his demeanor and disposition for the rest of his life. Do you think of your childhood as having been profoundly unhappy? No, not profoundly. My childhood wasn't... wasn't uh filled with any any great tragedies or anything there were good times and there were bad times i I think it was fairly normal jeff do you remember your your earliest experience and earliest interest fascination with the inside of animals where that came from uh in ninth grade uh in biology class we had uh, the usual dissection of uh, fetal pigs i took the remains of that home and, and kept uh the skeleton of it and I just started branching out uh, dogs cats I suppose it could have turned into a, a, a normal hobby like taxidermy but it, it didn't it veered off into into this why I, I don't know all I know is that uh, I wanted to, to see what the insides of these animals looked like was there some pleasure in, in the cutting open of the animal? Yes, there was. No no sexual pleasure, but just a... It's hard to describe. Sense of power, sense of control. I suppose that's a good way of putting it, yeah. And that was him later in life describing his childhood and describing a little bit about the fantasies that he had. His parents were both a little eccentric. If you watch the Netflix special, they touch on it. His mother had this far-fetched conspiracy theory involving the U.S. government believing in UFOs. Unfortunately, she's known to have attempted suicide. His father had an interesting relationship and an interesting way of bonding with his son. From a young age, Jeffrey, as he alluded to, was fascinated with death, Suppose They had this habit of stopping to pick up roadkill and taking it back to their house for taxidermy and experimental purposes. So Jeff learned firsthand how to dissect and dispose of the bodies of animals and conducted experiments with those bodies at a young age. Many experts would later classify during his trial, this is the foundation for his explicit desires and interest in anatomy, both animal and human, later in life. So let's flash back a couple years. Jeff's family moved in 1966 from Milwaukee to Doylestown, where his brother was born. And according to his father, Jeffrey was still oddly thrilled at that time by the sound hollowed bones made and became preoccupied with them. He initially called them his fiddlesticks. That's a very specific sound. (laughs) I know, right? That is like wind chimes on steroids and quite frightening if you think about that being his obsession at a young age. What I think is interesting killing animals is one of the mcdonald triad of a serial killer or a killer in general but it's interesting when you hear jeffrey dahmer's interviews which i've watched an unfortunate amount of them because of course i did but i found it interesting that he didn't necessarily go out and kill these animals and the pleasure he derived was not from killing them it was just from fucking around with their insides which is even creepier but 
it makes you wonder about his dad. Because I know, at least in the Netflix series, it made it seem like his mom was super weirded out by his fascination, which makes sense. But it seemed like his dad really did believe he was going in the taxidermy science route. And that's why it was so nurtured. Because I feel like so many people look at his dad and be like, why the fuck were you picking up roadkill with your son? That's weird. And the fact that he was getting so excited about it is also weird. But I guess it's obviously not an average hobby, but like taxidermy is for people, right? Yeah, that's not something abnormal. A lot of hunters do that. We live in an area where active hunters do that quite often. And it's just part of the nature of what they do. They kill an animal and they'll either take it to a taxidermist or are their own taxidermist. And yeah, it's a good thing to point out. He didn't kill these animals. He found them. And his dad, I think, kind of encouraged it a little bit. You know, my dad used to take us on hikes in the woods, too. At no point was he like, let's check out this dead animal and go home and bring it with us. Well, you weren't showing interest in being a taxidermist. I mean, it definitely can't all be attributed to his dad, but I think it was a contributing factor. But it said he occasionally even searched beneath and around the family home in the woods nearby and explored even the bodies of living animals to discover where their bones were located. It wasn't like he wasn't interested in this on his own. I just think from a young age, that would be something that most people would discourage. But his dad didn't, and everybody has their own opinion on who's responsible for what he became. I don't necessarily think you can put it all on one person and say, oh, it's because of this that he was the way he was. And we'll get to that. We'll talk about that. So while Jeff was a kid, their family moved a lot. Their address changed three times in two years during his adolescence. And Jeffrey later claimed in life that he had issues with abandonment and making friends as a result, which I found interesting as well, because we talk about that nature versus nurture and all that goes into somebody's psychological makeup. Something to consider was that he never really had many solid friends. Later in his youth, even at the age of 14, he was drinking and smoking, drinking hard liquor during the day, concealing liquor inside his jacket he wore to school type thing. He was even known to have mentioned to one classmate who inquired why he was drinking scotch in a morning class that he called the booze his medicine. So you're like, what the fuck? Obviously, that's a sign at an early age that he's already drinking that some issue at home stems. It was around that same time, and Jeff later admitted this, that he became more aware and more conscientious of his sexuality. He was attracted to men and primarily as a mix of his fascination with body parts and keeping things and abandonment, he was particularly fascinated with the chest, torso, and neck areas, as he later described in his fantasies and masturbatory thoughts. The idea of having the men he desired under his control kind of became central to his attraction. That was his thing. He wanted that control over that part of the body. And that later became the driving force for his sexual desires and eventual sex crimes. So the ideas of control and domination eventually became intertwined with one of his other fascinations, taxidermy and dissection. And his thoughts eventually manifested into uncontrollable urges. And as the ideas progressed, it became kind of convoluted in his desires to control his victims and, quote, keep them as his own. His desire for companionship and sexual domination became lustful urges, it seems, that he later claimed he could not control. Not because I hated them, but because I wanted to keep them with me. And uh, as my obsession grew, 
uh, I was saving body parts such as uh, skulls and uh, skeletons. And of it, I did uh, turn to uh, cannibalism. That was driven from, I'd say, a sexual desire, a compulsion, but also some curiousness, some fascination with his own dominance, his own ability to control, which was the central thesis that he talks about later in his interviews, that it really just fell on the idea that he wanted control and he wanted somebody around at all times, basically. So this fear of abandonment and this need for power became intermingled with his other fantasies, as twisted as they might have been. But as those fantasies grew deeper, Jeffrey Dahmer later described an incident with a male jogger he claimed to have an obsession with. When he was about 16, Dahmer conceived a fantasy of rendering unconscious this man he found attractive and then making sexual use of his body. On one occasion, Dahmer actually even concealed himself in bushes with a baseball bat to lie in wait for this guy who jogged by. However, he didn't happen to pass by on that particular day. That was Dahmer's first confessed desire to harm a man for the intention of using his body for sexual desires. Even at the age of 16, he had this thought in mind that he could hurt somebody in order to sexually control them. I found it interesting, too, that Dahmer was actually a class clown. In interviews with his classmates, he was described as having made antics and saying outlandish things to get a reaction from people, even sometimes impersonating someone with cerebral palsy, making obscene gestures, saying just completely ridiculous things in class. And he even used to ask for money from classmates for doing this for alcohol. It actually became known as a term, quote, doing a Dahmer that became pretty commonplace in his high school because he would just do these ridiculous things to try and get attention. And that only kind of added to his desire for attention. Real quick, so I'll probably talk about this in depth, maybe in a different episode, but the graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer, was then made into a movie. I got to see the author of My Friend Dahmer, who was a classmate of Jeffrey Dahmer's, speak at a showing of My Friend Dahmer. And that is what he said the most, is that... Jeffrey was super outlandish. One of the stories he told us was that randomly he would just start mooing in the middle of the hallway, but like screaming it. And people thought it was funny. They were like, who is this fucking kid? What is happening? Like What was described all over that Jeffrey Dahmer did a lot. I think there's a bigger conversation about loneliness and the human condition and not necessarily empathizing with Dahmer but understanding that as human beings just like dogs we have a desire to be part of a pack I'm glad you said that Lisa I think that part of our fascination with people like Jeffrey Dahmer is the what the fuck how could someone be like this question but at the same time when you hear about it from this perspective he was the goofy kid who had issues at home that he couldn't talk to anybody about so he tried to be friends with everybody at school and be a class clown. But at the same time, he's having these weird, lewd thoughts. And nobody knows anyone's thoughts. But you see that he was trying in some capacity to reach out for companionship, right? I mean, people looked at this guy as like, yeah, he's a goofball. I mean, there were even testimonies after the fact of people saying, yeah, I would have never thought it was him. He was a normal, quiet guy. It doesn't seem like there were too many people that were convinced that, oh, yeah, that guy's going to be a 
mad psychopath later in life, you know? During his time in high school, we don't know what was going on at home. Supposedly, his parents were arguing nonstop, both committed acts of adultery against the other. They agreed to get divorced, and Lionel moved out of the family house and into a nearby motel at this time. So again, more issues for Jeff facing abandonment and dealing with who in my family even wants to be around me. Jeffrey and his mother didn't really see eye to eye. He was closer to his dad, and they kind of took the point to emphasize that in the series as well. Eventually, his mother took his younger brother and left as well, with Jeff being 17, just left in the house on his own the summer before he was supposed to graduate. It was during this era of his life, unattended, unchecked, nobody looking after him, that his fantasies kind of became overwhelming to the point that he honed his desires to physically harm people as he was also sinking further into alcoholism to deal with this sense of abandonment. He was approaching high school graduation 1978, facing declining grades, minimal prospects for college, or anything really going on after school. He didn't really have too much that he liked or wanted to do. He was drinking excessively. His mother and brother gone in the summer of 1978, his dad shortly before that. So he's just by himself. And in that time, he was really isolated, isolated himself even further and became devoted almost overwhelmed and overcome by his sexual desires with little recourse but to act on them to satiate himself. Let's talk a little bit about how that devolved into him becoming an actual killer. His first experience, as we said, with true isolation, his mental state deteriorated to the point that he was really no longer in control of his faculties. He later would claim that his fantasies about killing the jogger were really just the beginning of his devolvement into his sexual desires. He had thoughts of killing or harming people well beyond that. And at that time, he even stole his first mannequin of a male torso. I don't know if it was a boxing thing, like you see those heavy bags that are shaped like people, something like that. He said he enjoyed fondling it and laying with it as sort of a twisted form of companionship. And the mannequin was actually where he was able to kind of unseal his desires and at least feel outwardly homosexual without doing anything. Just kept it all inside. Do you have any sense for where that was coming from? No. No, I've, I've talked with uh, a few psychologists about it. They, they have their theories, but they don't have any concrete answers either. Do you have a theory? No, not really. I, I don't know where, where it came from. I probably will never know. But I, I never, I never dreamed that it would uh, become a reality. Apprehend. What was it, Jeff, that took you over the edge? Do you think, and made you take this from the world of fantasy into reality? From uh, 15 on, I, I had this reoccurring fantasy of uh, of uh, meeting a hitchhiker on the road, and uh, of taking him hostage and and doing what I wanted. About three years later, I was 18 years old, driving home, uh, I saw this hitchhiker about a mile from my house. thought to myself, should I stop and pick him up or should I just keep on going? Uh, I wish I just keep on, kept on going, but I didn't. I turned around, picked him up, and uh, that's when, that's when it, the nightmare became a reality. As he said, Dahmer's first murder was committed when he was 18 in the year 1978. 
a few short weeks after his high school graduation. He picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks, who was on his way to a concert in Ohio. Dahmer lured him back to his house with the promise of some beer and some weed, and then said he would drive the man to the concert himself. And keep in mind, back in the day, hitchhiking wasn't a totally uncommon practice, especially for young people who did not have cars. You would hopefully catch somebody going the same direction you were, catch a ride a few miles. I mean, my dad even says, you know, back in the day, they used to hitchhike every so often. Wasn't that uncommon? But either way, after rejecting his advances and wanting to leave, Dahmer bludgeoned Hicks with a 10-pound weight and then strangled the life out of him with the bar of it. He would later claim, and again, trigger warnings throughout here, that he masturbated standing over his first victim and then dragged the body into a basement crawl space where a couple days later, and mind you, he's living alone at this point, he dismembered and removed the flesh from his bones using acid. He then buried what was left of his remains and his bones in his parents' backyard. Roughly six weeks later, Dahmer's father returns to his house to find his son Jeff living alone and in squalor. He attempted to enroll him in Ohio State University's program, which Jeff failed out of shortly after enrollment. His grades were suffering, and he was already not necessarily geared towards school at that point. I think he had other motivations that were controlling his mind. From that point, though, Lionel Dahmer made the decision that his son would best be suited in the military, where he said he could hopefully gain life skills and some manner of discipline. Unfortunately, it didn't take. His tenure in the Army was pretty short-lived. He underwent basic training at Fort McClellan in Anniston, Alabama, before he trained as a medical specialist in Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. Jeff spent about a year in the Army and was occasionally reprimanded for intoxication while stationed at Fort Sam Houston. He eventually was deployed to Germany and served on a medical unit in the 68th Infantry Battalion. In his first year, Jeff received marks of being an average or slightly above average soldier, except for his occasional intoxication. He was still drinking a lot, but according to his military records, they said he was an average soldier. But heavily drinking eventually catches up with everybody. He was involved in a couple other scandals, including being caught drunk on duty or fraternizing when he should have been to work or otherwise occupied. So as a result, Y'all know the military doesn't put up with that shit. He was honorably discharged from military service in March 1981. And the distinguishable difference is that honorably discharged means we still think you can be a normal member of society, you can get along and be fine, you just can't serve in the military, so you're discharged. I think if he had been dishonorably discharged, it might have been a little bit different and probably a little more weight behind it, but wasn't how it went. And at the time, he was really just drinking. He didn't kill anybody while he was in the military. He didn't do anything outlandish. He just was caught drunk on duty a few times. But after that, at first he was afraid to go home. Said he didn't want to go back to his dad and disappoint him. So he tried to relocate to Miami. He spent several months there before facing the inevitability that he would have to face his father. And that caught up with him and he went home to Ohio. And as I said, during all this and during most of his crimes, my man was drinking excessively. He received an arrest for drunk and disorderly conduct when he got home to Ohio. Living with his father and stepmother, both of them tried their best to control or reduce his drinking habit to at least acceptable levels. But unfortunately, none of the measures that they tried were successful in that regard. At that point, they suggested that he move to Wisconsin to live with his grandmother. 
supposedly was one of the only family members he really cared for and who really looked after him. She always had affection for her grandson and always kind of took pity on him. His father and stepmother hoped that her influence, she being a devout Christian, plus the change of location and just a new outlook on life, might kind of persuade Dahmer to quit drinking so much and live at least somewhat responsibly. At first, that actually kind of seemed to take, but after only a few short years, his true nature came to light and he was arrested for indecent exposure at a local fair. On August 8th, 1982, at the Wisconsin State Fair, he was observed having exposed himself on the south side of the Coliseum, in which 25 people were present, including women and children. And when I say exposed himself, you know what I'm talking about. He was convicted and fined $50. He claimed he was drunk and unaware of what he was doing, but his record of strange behavior was only just beginning and not even quite underway yet. During this time, he was actually propositioned by a man at a local Library guy came on to him and offered, well, funky funky in the bathroom or something. But Jeff said that that didn't really satisfy him as much because it kind of became more about his sexual fantasies being more about control and domination. And as those two overlapped, the idea that anybody even moving wasn't really his thing. Around this time, and this is like mid-early 80s, like 83, 84. He starts patrolling Milwaukee's gay bars and gay nightclub scene and bathhouses and bookstores all in the area where he could meet young men. They became kind of his frequent haunts, if you will. He's also known to have stolen another male mannequin at this time, but his grandmother discovered it and stowed it in a closet and then demanded that he get rid of it. So he's now kind of branching out to the point where he doesn't really care if his grandmother finds out he's not really concerned about anything. I think he tried to be secretive, but he couldn't control himself at this point. I think his desires had basically overcome his sense of rationale. And it was around this time and he started spending a lot more money and a lot more time in bathhouses, in bars, having sexual encounters with men. But he would later complain that he didn't really like the movement that was involved and their activity. He more just preferred that his victims be docile and open to his manipulation. He claimed that he fantasized about the ultimate control and having them alive, but not able to move. So his fantasies are clearly growing darker. And that's when it, when it all started again. And once it started again, you found it impossible to stop. Right, that, that's when the, the obsession went into full swing. Did you ever tell yourself, I have to stop this? I must stop doing this? Yes. When it was going on? After, after the second time, it seemed like the compulsion to do it was too strong, and I, I didn't even try to stop it after that. But uh, after, before the second time, things had been building up gradually, uh, going to bookstores, going to uh, the bars, the gay bars, uh, bath clubs. When that, did, when that wasn't enough, uh, buying sleeping pills and, and using it on uh, various guys in the bath clubs, it just escalated slowly but surely. And uh, after the second time, which was uh, not planned, uh, it was out of control. It felt like it was out of control. So you hear him talking a little bit about 
his modus operandi, how he would meet people, how he would go about this, I hate to say hunting process, but that's kind of what it was. On September 8th, 1986, Dahmer's arrested upon a charge of lewd and lascivious behavior for masturbating in the presence of two 12-year-old boys as he stood close to the Kinnikinick River in Wisconsin. Say that five times fast. He claimed he'd merely just been urinating, unaware that there were witnesses, but soon afterwards admitted to the offense after they told their side of the story. He received an additional year's probation. Mind you, he's already had one sex crime charge, but he received an additional year's probation on these charges. So a pattern for a lack of concern for his surroundings and others around him is seemingly becoming more dangerous as we look. As a result of his fantasies, he started sneakily kind of giving sleeping pills to his partners, as he alluded to, giving them liquor laced with sedatives. He'd wait for his partner to fall asleep, his victim, I should say, before performing various sexual acts on them in their state of sedation. To maintain adequate supply, he was informing doctors that he worked nights and needed these extra pills to adjust to his schedule to sleep during the day. This was going on for months now, where he's literally taking men to bathhouses, renting a room for the night, slipping them drugs, doing what he wanted with them, and then leaving them there, sedated and fucked up and unable to move. At one point, someone OD, and after about 12 of these instances, the bathhouse's administration actually revoked Dahmer's membership, saying that he wasn't allowed to come back to these public establishments anymore. He's known about in the community at this point. He's that guy. So what did he do? started using hotel rooms. He described a little bit about how he would meet people, but how he would take them to his hotel or to this bathhouse room, slip them a drink, and then once they passed out, he had his way with them. On one such occasion, he let it get too far. And he talks about between his first and second murder, if you recall from the episode on Netflix, they made it seem like he drugged himself and then overtly hurt the man in his sleep. The recollection that Dahmer had was that he woke up and had killed the man. Not that he necessarily drank it or that he didn't or that he drank too much, but without realizing how he'd done it, this man's chest, Stephen Tuomi was his name. Stephen's chest was crushed and blackened with bruises, quote unquote. And Dahmer even claimed that he tried to revive him before stuffing his body in a purchased suitcase and trying to remove him from the hotel unnoticed. So he's drug, either drugging himself, drugging these men, getting into a state of drunkenness or sedation that he can't even remember, and then in a hotel, covers it up by taking the man's body and stuffing it into a suitcase to try and get him out. One week later, after storing him in the basement at his grandma's, he severed the head, arms, and legs from the torso, filleted the bones from the body before cutting the flesh into pieces small enough to handle and dispose of, and then placing the flesh inside plastic garbage bags. He wrapped the bones inside a sheet and pounded them into splinters with a sledgehammer. The entire dismemberment process took Dahmer approximately two hours to complete. He disposed of... Stephen Tuomi's remains, excluding his severed head, which he wrapped and kept in his grandmother's trash. 
And I'll just say this whole thing is shocking, but when you hear about it, what lengths he went to, it's like, wow. Okay. I also think an added part of why it's so shocking is if you listen to the interviews we're playing. He's very open and honest about it. And at first it didn't seem like he was okay with being caught, but then all of a sudden it seemed like he was like, you know what, I'm caught, let's let it all out. I think that's part of the reason that's so shocking, not only because the crimes are absolutely heinous, but because he talks about it so matter-of-factly. Just casually, as though he's telling you about how he used to use these recipes for chicken in the winter. And part of the horrifying thing is in these interviews, he seems like a pretty normal guy. You know, but he's talking about things that are disgusting and horrifying. And you're like, Jesus Christ, he's having this conversation and he's being interviewed about having killed 17 people. And you're right, Lisa, it seems like he's just chit-chatting a little bit. I think that murder was really the catalyst for the now infamous killing spree that would ensue. And his grandmother's house, tragically, became the place that he initially was bringing young gay men back to, oftentimes with the promise of money or to take some photos or a sexual encounter like they met at the bar. And then he would drug them with either triazolam or temazepam and then let them fall asleep. He actually committed a total of three murders in the time living at his grandmother's, which was, I think, three years. And this is where it gets really horrifying. A 14-year-old Native American boy named James Doxeter. They allegedly met and had discussed some ideas of a sexual encounter for 50 bucks and some nude pictures before Dahmer strangled him to death with a belt in his grandmother's basement. He kept his body in his grandmother's basement for a week before dismembering him and disposing of all of the parts of the body, same way he did with Tuomi's, but his skull. But he said later that he couldn't preserve the skull, so he crushed it with that same mallet. Shortly thereafter, he committed another murder, a young man named Richard Guerrero, under the same pretenses. Come back, we'll have a couple drinks, I'll give you some money, we'll take some pictures. And in that same frame, actually disposed of his body in similar fashion. So Dahmer at this point is evolving into a highly functioning serial killer with a modus operandi that's successful for him and a seemingly endless pool of victims and a place to bring them and dispose of them. There was only one hiccup. His grandma. Okay, let's take a quick moment and highlight this cool ass lady who unfortunately was duped it seems like but his grandma had some suspicions about jeff the fact that her place started to smell terrible i think at the time she probably didn't want to admit that he was gay but knew that he was or at least was interested in men if not outwardly gay she had suspected that he had some odd tendencies of course not just his sexual proclivities but that he liked bringing home dead animals for example that kind of threw her off and also that he was kind of a loner. And at his age, he didn't really have too many friends who came over during the day. They all seemed to come over late at night. So she doesn't want to accuse him of anything. I assume because he's her grandson. She didn't want to delve down that road. However, in April of 1987, Jeffrey brought home a young man whom he claimed he was helping out of a sticky situation with his car battery dying. The same procedure went down as Jeff was getting so accustomed to doing, offered the young man a pot of coffee and drugged him until he fell asleep. However, his grandma, hero that she was, 
called down and asked, Jeff, is that you? Knowing full well he was not alone, that he had somebody with him. She'd heard voices. Came down and disrupted Jeff in the middle of his process. I thought this was one of the coolest parts of the series when they actually show his grandma kind of standing up to him and saying, no, I'm not leaving. I'm sitting up with this man until he wakes up. Because Jeff was just trying to claim, he's just drunk. You know, he's fine. He's going to pass out here shortly. I'll wake him up later. But she insisted that she was not going to leave him, stayed up and made him take the young man to a local hospital, which he did. I like to think she saved a life that night, 100%. I'm almost positive that Dahmer would have done the same thing he had been doing successfully for the last couple months. I will ask the question later about responsibility. I think his grandma was another unfortunate victim of his in the sense that she was not aware of what he was and what he was capable of, but had to endure some pretty awful things in the same token. Shortly thereafter, she told Jeff he had to move out, that the smell was becoming too much, she wasn't comfortable with him having people over, and that he just had to move out. In September of that year, which I believe was 1988, Jeff gets his own apartment. Barely two days after moving in, he is arrested for the sexual assault of a minor in his new apartment for fondling a 13-year-old boy under the pretense and backstory that he wanted to just take some pictures. On January 30th, 1989, Jeffrey Dahmer pled guilty to the charge of second-degree sexual assault and of enticing a minor for immoral purposes. Sentencing for the assault was suspended until May. On March 20th, 1989, Dahmer commenced a 10-day Easter absence from work, during which he moved back into his grandmother's home. Uh, there was a sexual part, part to that. Uh, I started saving the, the skeletons and preserving other parts. And uh, one thing led to another. It took, it took more and more... Uh, deviant type behaviors to satisfy uh, my urges and so it just uh, spiraled out of control why the cannibalism it, it, it made me feel like they were uh, a permanent part of me besides besides the just mere curiosity of what it would be like it made them feel that they were a part of me and it, it gave me a, a sexual uh, uh, satisfaction to do that that's Jeffrey describing in detail a little bit about his fantasies and his actions while living in his grandmother's and what he was honing into, which was a very skilled killer. Having had his ideas and his segues into conversations, he's good at luring men back, whatever it might be, whether he's offering help, whether he's offering money, sexual favors photographs he's a model or photographer whatever he's getting good at this we start talking about this with ted bundy as well we start talking about this with john wayne gacy these guys kind of developed a method to the madness they knew what they had to say they'd get them back they'd find their way of getting them either under their control or sedating them and it became second nature you heard Dahmer talking about that in his own words that was part of the chase so, he's just been charged with his third sexual-related crime. In the time frame between his sentencing and his conviction, he murders a fifth victim, a young man named Anthony Sears. 
same deal, lured him back and strangled him to death. The unique thing about Anthony Sears was that, according to Dahmer, he found him exceptionally attractive. And Sears was the first victim whom he permanently retained any body parts from. He preserved Sears' head and genitalia in acetone and stored them in a wooden box. He placed the corpse in his grandmother's bathtub, where he decapitated the body before attempting to flay the corpse and stripped the flesh from his body and pulverized the bones with a mallet, which he later threw in the trash. It doesn't really get any more awful. Uh, He's becoming a lethal killer at this point. He's used to doing this, and he's doing it in his grandmother's house. On May 23, 1989, Jeffrey Dahmer was sentenced to five years probation and one year in a house of correction with permitted work release in order that he would be able to keep his job. He was also required to register as a sex offender. Dahmer was paroled from this regimen two months early. So this guy's committed now three sexual-related crimes, two of them against minors or in the presence of minors, and he's getting leniency to go work at his job. And I'm pretty sure he worked at a factory that mixed chocolate. It wasn't like he was a nurse or a vital member of the police force or anything. Anybody's like really looking for him to be at his job. He just needed to keep his job. He's initially put on five years probation, imposed in 1989. Upon his release, two months early, Dahmer temporarily moves back into his grandmother's home in West Allis. In 1990, she insists he moved out. Now Jeff, again, is out on parole, multiple sexual-related incidents with minors, and he gets his own apartment. Guys, at this point... I know this has been an absolutely wild case. We want to take a pause, let everyone digest, no pun intended. That was foul. Sorry. We want to give a little bit of breathing room here. So we're going to make this a two-part episode. Please come back. Check out part two. It will be dropping very soon. You know how we do it. We don't like to keep you hanging for too long. This is how we do it. I can't wait to be back with y'all here in part two. Make sure you check it out because, as y'all know, this is a doozy of a case. It truly is. It really is. I mean, honestly, anybody who watched that documentary got a little bit of a taste of it. It was not a documentary, but there are documentaries on the case. I'm sorry. I was talking about, what's it called? The Netflix special. There you go. Sorry. I lost I lost track of the term for a moment there. It wasn't a documentary. Thank you, Lisa. Wait, you guys, I know nobody else but me watches Dr. Phil, but Dr. Phil has an exclusive interview with Jeffrey's dad. So maybe that's something we should think about. All right. See you guys in part two. Y'all rate, review, subscribe. You know those five stars be waiting for you to click them. 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 Thank you, y'all.